Father, you are a God who has spoken that we might hear, that we might see and know. Lord, I pray this morning as your word is read and expounded on, you would indeed speak to us truths that transform and change. Lord, I pray especially if there be anyone here that does not yet know you, that they would see you. They would see your son and they would marvel and that they would be excited to see the Savior. Father, please help me as I try to trip my way through this huge passage to um, not confuse or to um, swerve away from the main truths but help me, Lord, to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. And to those online, how are you all doing? Very quiet. <laughs> Apologies again to those online um, that the camera's not working. It's been said before that I have the perfect face for radio. So it's not a, a bad thing that the camera's not working today, but we do uh, we will try and get that working for next week. What a big passage this is, isn't it? And you might think, well, why didn't you break it up into small chunks? And I only wish I could. It's colossal. You can't really leave all of that out. Um, in fact, the next bit you can't really leave out. Um, but nonetheless, um, we need to try and work our way through it. I think that there are six major points in these passages. The writer repeats himself quite a bit, so we'll need to trip through it very carefully to pull the truths together. Uh, but we don't have time to do six points. <laughs> we only have time to do the first three. So next time, Lord willing, we'll do the next two. And the last one we'll do actually when we get to chapter 11, and you'll see why. That is the case, and there's obviously a piece to do between this chunk and chapter 11. It is my hope and my prayer, and has been for several weeks now, that we would in fact get excited, not so much about this passage, but about the high priest in this passage. It would be really good for us to be refreshed and enthralled by the person of Christ and his ministry and that's one of the reasons this passage exists it's an odd thing to me that as we get older and we learn more and we understand more of the theology and the doctrine um, we don't necessarily become more excited we should but sometimes it's uh, the excitement of a new believer who's just getting their head perhaps around these things um, that gives a true picture of being enthralled so my prayer is that we would be enthralled today. You ready to be enthralled? Yeah. Amen. So to give us some context on how we've got to this passage, you will remember that the writer of Hebrews has introduced this context, concept and reality that Jesus Christ is a high priest. And he spent a lot of time and labor explaining in earlier passages why he is allowed to be a high priest because technically he's from the wrong family and so he told us that he's the priest the high priest of a different order 
the order of Melchizedek. And it's important because Christ needs to be the prophet, he needs to be the priest, and he needs to be the king. And he tells us that the reason he goes to so much effort to explain to us that Jesus is the high priest is so that he can tell us something else. He says, the point of what I'm saying is this. And he introduces why this high priest is better. He introduces the idea that there is a new covenant, a new sacrifice, a new offering that is better. The new covenant, he says, is new and better because it's enacted on better promises, not like the old covenant. The new promises fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31 and Ezekiel and other scriptures tell us that there's a transformational change that's going to happen as a result of the new covenant in us who believe that is different to the old covenant. It brings internal transformation, not outward observance of ritual, although we need to observe the law, right? Finishes the job, this new covenant of atoning sacrifice. We've been reminded of that already. And what I want to say to you is the aim of this passage today as he continues to elaborate on the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the high priest, isn't that you'll collect information. It's good to collect the information. But that's not the aim of the passage. The aim of the passage is in understanding and seeing Christ and his work happen that we will know and experience full assurance of faith do you need full assurance of faith i do that's the objective of this passage and it might not be immediately clear to us the passage itself tells us right in the middle of it right in the heart of it that you're going to die and it's true unless the lord returns we're all going to die Verse 27 of chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So you and I must consider that one day we're going to go through the gates of death. I want to use that language, the gates of death. It's a passageway, if you will. It's a doorway into something else. And when we go through that, there are two other options. We can't choose them at that point. It's too late. Because judgment comes, as that text says. We will either go through to the gates of heaven and on into eternal life, fully redeemed, guilt-free, to stand in the throne room with Christ to live eternally with him or the gates of hell await us eternal death in a living way right it's not death in terms of annihilation if that was the case then death wouldn't hold any fear for anyone but eternal death in a living way 
guilty where there is nothing but eternal judgment. And the problem with it is it's eternal. Can't get out. There is no purgatory or no man's land that you can somehow bounce through time and effort and people's prayers into heaven. It's not true. It's a myth. And this passage, as I've said already, aims to bring assurance to the believer. So let's make sure that we get that, not just collect information. So please get excited. You're going to get excited? You sound a bit more excited already. That's good. Good start. No falling asleep. That would not be excited. And I've got just those three points I want to look at. Um, and then, as I said, next time we'll do two. And then some point later, we'll do the final one when we get to chapter 11. So point number one. The old covenant fails to achieve its full outcome. Now, I'm immediately going to need to contradict myself here because I will, God willing, be teaching that the old covenant doesn't fail when we get to chapter 11. But it fails to fulfill its complete outcome, to achieve its full outcome. And we're told there are two basic ways in which it fails. Firstly, we're told that the Old Covenant practices, the Old Covenant rituals, the Old Covenant priesthood, sacrificial system, and the actual sacrifices themselves can never make perfect those who draw near to God. Have a look with me. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. There's a problem then, isn't there, with the old covenant? It doesn't meet its full outcome. Because drawing near to God is what we need, ultimately. In worship now, but in the fullness of time, in his presence. And yet those sacrifices can never cleanse to the uttermost. There's no assurance, is there, in the Old Covenant? There's no assurance that we can be perfect enough to draw near to God. You might say, well, there's plenty of people that don't want to draw near to God. And that's right. The problem is that they'll be brought to God. They'll be forced to draw near to God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess who he is to the glory of the Father. There's no assurance in that. And secondly, we're told that the old covenant practices, the rituals, the sacrificial system, the priesthood and the sacrifices themselves cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Literally meaning you cannot have assurance that your sins have been fully forgiven because they've never been totally dealt with. 
you must go back again and again. And I can't imagine what it was like going up to the Day of Atonement. It's been pretty amazing. And uh, the sins are atoned for by the sacrifice. And there are unintentional sins. There's the scapegoat. There's the bulls for the priest. There's the, the doves and the lambs and all the sacrifices that happen in the temple. We say, amen, something has died to pay for sin. It wouldn't take me long, what about you, to leave the temple before I sin again. What will my conscience say to me? It's okay. Just had the sacrifices, it's all good. Well, actually, the law says I've got to go back at some point. Never freeze the conscience, does it? Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9, 9. According to this arrangement, the sacrificial arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The old covenant work and practice for the worshipper, the one going to praise God, but to have atonement made for sin, will tell you that you need more sacrificial animals again and again and again. Because they cannot take away, it's important language, they cannot completely remove. Redeem literally means to rid Get rid of something to take it away so that you can be free. They cannot take away the problem of sin. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. They need to be removed. They need to be got rid of. Now, I just want to digress momentarily just to make sure that we understand couple of uh, words that are being used here i'll just read it again hebrews 9 verse 8 by this the holy spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic of the present age according to this arrangement gift sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation and i just want to explain the present age and the time of reformation because this is often misunderstood the present age that he's referring to is the old covenant period now remember that he said in the previous passage the old covenant and its practices is now obsolete and then he says and what is obsolete is fading away and incidentally it's faded right it's gone completely faded there's nothing left not one iota of the old covenant in practice it's gone no priests no one knows who the levitical priests are no temple well, at least the temple's there but it's not there so there's no curtain none of these artifacts that we we learn about at the beginning of this passage they're gone they're all gone he says we cannot now speak of them that's what he's talking about with respect to the present age but then he talks about a thing called the time of reformation and the time of Reformation is the, as it were, inauguration of the new covenant. 
And he's referring from moving to the old covenant practice to the new. He's transitioning from one to the other. And the word reformation is extraordinary in Greek. It means to reform something. Well, you say that's pretty obvious. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the old covenant is being turned into a new covenant that reforms the old. The literal understanding of the word in Greek is to make straight, to make something that is bent straight. Think, for example, of a, a man or a woman, well, a man back in those days, who makes swords for the Romans, let's say. This grand, beautiful sword that's straight. And the, the soldier goes out and he gets engaged in battle and he comes back with his bent, twisted sword. In order to make that sword fit for purpose again, it needs to be made straight. It needs to be reformed. And the new covenant is exactly this. And it's inaugurated by the great high priest. The great high priest of the new covenant, not the high priest of the old covenant. So let's just explain that point. So point number one was that the old covenant fails to achieve its full outcome. Let's move to point number two. Christ's high priestly ministry is better by action. See, the only way to resolve the problem of a system that doesn't fully pay the price, in this case for sin, is to find a system that does fully pay for it, right? Can't move from another one that from this one to one that still doesn't work. You've got to get one that does work. To be frank, you need a new covenant, a reformed one. That's enacted on better promises. Sound familiar? That's enacted uh, so that the high priest can make the final payment. You need a better temple in which to make the payment. You need a better sacrifice that can fully pay the price. A bigger bull? Is that going to work? No. You need something better. And that's exactly what Christ does. But when Christ appeared, there's the old covenant, present time, all the artifacts, all the procedures, all the animals. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, time of reformation, of the good things that have come, though then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, the unblemished lamb, to God, how much more will that purify our conscience? There's that word again. From dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the first thing I hear from that is that there needs to be a better place, a better temple where this sacrificial work happens. And there it is again in 924, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but where? Into heaven itself. Did you get that? This, this high priest didn't come to do the work in the physical temple. He was in the temple a lot, wasn't he? Preaching, kicking everyone out, right? He's a great high priest, but he didn't do the work of the great high priest there. He did the work in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Christ's atoning work as a high priest was done in the temple that is the heavenly one. You might say, when did he do that? And to read that part in scripture that says, he then went into the holy temple and did the sacrificial work. Well, actually you did. You know where it is? It's on the cross. That's where the work is of Christ offering himself, isn't it? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Take me. That's where the judgment happens on the cross. You might say, well, it's figurative, and there's a sense in which it is figurative, but there's a sense in which it's true. Christ enters the Holy of Holies as the sacrificial lamb, as the high priest offering the sacrificial lamb on the cross. You see, in the Old Covenant, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, as we've heard from this passage, once a year, taking the blood, sprinkling it, doing everything that he had to do according with the law, according to that old covenant. And he was separated, as God was separated from the Holy of Holies, from everything else, by what? A curtain. Christ didn't go into that place, literally. He went into it spiritually on the cross. And unlike the curtain that veiled the people from the presence of God, Darkness covered the face of the earth again. No one could see what was happening. Darkness covered. That's when the judgment happened. That's the picture of judgment. Read the Old Testament. That's the, 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 uh, the picture that's being given there. It went dark. It literally went dark. And Christ was judged on the cross. And the darkness has obscured the people from seeing the judgment just like the high priest entering the temple physically. There's a better place. It's the real one. There's the physical temple. It's just a copy and a shadow of the real one. And there's the real one. Secondly, there a better sacrifice. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. He didn't take anything else into sacrifice. He took himself. The payment that he made was himself. This is staggering, isn't it? This gets me really excited, just the concept that God 
will become a man with the aim and the objective and the goal of sacrificing himself for the sin of the world. Just think about that for a second. God did that. At no point in history was Jesus just a man. That's not what's going on. He doesn't start out as a man and somehow through all this great work becomes a God. In the beginning was the word and he was with God and he was God in the beginning. There's no separation. See, God is, as Christ, sacrificing himself, literally sacrificing his blood, spilling his blood, pouring his life out. You might say, well, wasn't it the Romans that were doing that via the Jews? Well, they were part of getting him on the cross. But it was Christ that gave himself. It was Christ that put himself there. And linked with that, we move to our next point, that Christ is a better, greater cost because he's of immeasurable value. Verse 13 of chapter 9, For if the blood of ghouls and ghouls, the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify a conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me ask you a question. How much is Christ's life work worth? How much is he worth? He's the author of life, isn't he? He's the one who creates and things come into being. He's the one who gave you life initially. You know that? He's the one that gave you new life by the new covenant. How much is his life worth? How much is Christ's blood worth? What's its value? Well, the only thing we can say to answer that fairly is it is of infinite value. Its value knows no end. It is of infinite worth. Point one, the old covenant fails to achieve its full outcome. Point number two, Christ's high priestly ministry is better by action. And lastly, point number three, Christ's high priestly ministry is better by outcome. There's just one main point here, and that is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, died once for all, and it was enough every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As we heard at the end of that reading, it says, where there is forgiveness of these, there no longer remains an offering for sin. See, that's the main difference you get when you sacrifice an infinite God for the sins of the world compared to a bull or a goat or a dove or a sheep or a lamb. 
One requires it to be done again and again and can never satisfy the law, and the other satisfies it instantly. Infinite worth. The outcome's different. So finish the job. And that was the plan. This wasn't a second plan. This wasn't the Lord saying, well, you know what? That first covenant didn't kind of work out, that old covenant. Let's come up with something better. This is the plan. The old covenant is there to point us to the new. That's why Hebrews exists, so that we can understand the new covenant. You know anything about a high priest before you're a Christian? It's not in our culture, is it? You know anything about sin needing paying for? It's not in our culture. Look out the window. People don't know this stuff. That's why Hebrews is written, so that we can somehow enter in and see the workings of what's happening. I mean, it's a grand mystery. It's a supernatural, metaphysical event beyond our comprehension, but we can at least see something of the types and the figures and how it's being fulfilled. He did it once for all because the sacrifice was finished. The job was done. He finished it. And you know what? When he finished, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down, it says elsewhere, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that concept of Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, doing some work and sitting down is all over Scripture, Old Testament and New, because he'd finished. Why? Because he dealt with it. And here's the point. He'd taken it away. Didn't need paying for again. Think of John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. It's a bit like me. He's a loudmouth, but he's a prophet. Let's not confuse me with him in that way at all. But I love it. He's baptizing people in the, in the river, in the Jordan, for the forgiveness of their sins. You know who comes down to talk to him about it when they hear? The scripture records it for us. The priests. The priests go down to see, what, what's John doing? The Levites go down. It says that they're sent by the Pharisees. Now, can you imagine you know, what, what's going on? Is, is John baptizing for the forgiveness of sins? What are they thinking? What are these Levites? and What are you doing, John? We've got a temple for that stuff. We've got an old covenant. We've got the rituals and the sacrifices we've got the priests some of them are us what are you doing you can't baptize in water for the forgiveness of sins you know what he says you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath you know what happens next he sees jesus coming The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, you Levites, this is the new covenant. This is actually the high priest. This is the sacrifice. And he's going to take it away. He's not going to need doing again. Because when Christ does it, because of his immeasurable worth, he completely satisfies the Father by paying for the sin of the world. He sat, we call it propitiation. Propitiation. The father is well pleased with the sacrifice of his son. He finishes the job. 
And on the, the cross himself, after that darkness is gone, he says, it is finished. And we know, we know the Greek tetelestai, we know that it's an aorist tense. We know that it literally means it's done and it doesn't need doing again. It's finished. It is fit. What's finished? What is it, Lord? What's finished on the cross? <laughs> the payment for sin. I've been judged. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Did you hear that? He sent him as flesh, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and for sin. This wasn't a sideshow. This wasn't a second thought. Christ came into the world to die for sinners, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's, that's the heaviest word, set of words in that text. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Why? Because it's a new covenant, because he's the great high priest, because it's a better place, because it's a better sacrifice, because it's of immeasurable worth and it's enacted on better promises. That's the point of this passage. That's what he's trying to get us to see. He brings the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, and he transacts the great measure of debt for sin with the greatest payment of life, his own. He's judged by the Father in our place, amen? He's judged instead of us so that when you and I pass through the gates of death, what do we see? <laughs> The gates to heaven open wide and Christ welcoming us in to the throne room of God, not guilty. And that, friends, is why you can have full assurance of faith. Amen. That's the reason. <laughs> the old covenant's not going to save you. Only Christ can do it. Because Jesus took away sin, took it away. As far as the east is from the west, Scripture says. Jesus finished the job. Jesus paid it all. What does the song say? We're going to sing it in a minute. And when before the throne I stand in him, complete. Jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So as we close, I just want to ask you to consider a few things about you and your life. 
as I've done and still do about mine. What is your conscience like? You have one. You have one. What is your consciousness of sin like? We come here believing that we stand in full assurance of faith. And what's your life like? Think about it. Pause. Reflect on yourself. We do a lot of reflecting on ourselves, but not often this kind of reflecting. Think about the sinful nature of your heart. Now, I know that we're trying to obey Christ and that in Christ we can. Think about it for a second. The thoughts, the intentions, the deeds that only you know about along with God. Think deeply about yourself and your life and your sin because you will pass through the gates. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It's appointed for man to die once and then to be judged. The next passage is going to give us a warning, by the way, when we get there. Again, what is your conscience like? Full of guilt? I want you to know this. If you are in Christ, you're free. From the guilt of that. That doesn't mean you can carry on sinning, by the way. Your guilt, your conscience should now tell you, well, Christ died for this. Why would I do this? <laughs> My Savior lived and died and gave his life up for this. And perhaps you don't know that. Perhaps you've actually never come to Christ. You've never, as it were, entered in to him. Well, if that's the case, then you will have a guilty conscience, and rightly so. And that's a good thing, because maybe God will use that to wake you up, to shake you and say, you need my son, your sins have been paid for by him, you need him. What place are you going to? Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish about who you are. Be honest about who you really are. Because it's heaven or hell. Come to Christ. Ask for mercy. And you will receive forgiveness. You will receive redemption. The power of your sin will be gone. O death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? It's gone. If you are in Christ, I want to encourage you. If you're a real believer, if you're a real follower of Christ, if you trust him with your life, if you fight against your old nature to obey and to honor and bring glory to him, and I want you to know these things. You have, you can have, you will have a confidence that when you enter the Holy of Holies, when your time comes, Jesus' blood will save you. And when you go, th go through the curtain, which is now replaced by Jesus, you will be safe. 
that you can draw near to God. It's a new covenant, guys. You can have full assurance with faith in Christ. Listen to this as we close. Just close your eyes, if you will. Just meditate on this, and then I'll pray. This is the goal of the entire passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through us for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, listen, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, how great is our high priest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, in so many ways, it's such a big, big, big picture to take in. And yet it's there for us to see. Lord, how can we not bow the knee and just say thank you for Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness, for your obedience, for becoming, taking on flesh and for giving yourself up as a, an atoning sacrifice for sin and completing the mission. Lord, you sit now at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, and we know that you will return. And when you return, it won't be to redeem or sin a second time, for you've done that work, but to call those that are yours to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would live this week in a way that honors you in those truths. Lord, that we wouldn't uh, live in a way that where we've just assembled and collected ideas and truths about you, but a way that really transforms who we are, the way we live for your sake. And we just give thanks for your word in Jesus. Amen.